It's Thursday, March 29th, 2018, and you're listening to episode 480 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 54 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. And my name's Chad. And I'm Jason. All right, so joining us today is... Mr. Jason Brick, who is a guy that I have known for several years. I have met him at a Fear the Con, where he and I had an interesting chat outside of Merrimack Caverns. And I've also contributed to two of his anthologies, Baby Shoes and Flash, both of which were Flash fiction collections. So a thousand words or less. I'll link those in the show notes. And if he has a house, is it a brick house? Does he let it all hang out? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're actually never heard that before never once although our, we have one of those doorknobs or not doorknobs doorbells where you can put in the song of your choice and that is the song that it plays when you hit the doorbell Excellent. okay that is awesome <laughs> what, okay, I, i'm honestly confused what song is this Jesus it's a brick House. House. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. Mighty, okay. mighty. Let My, mighty, mighty. Out. That's it. I couldn't remember what the, the next part was. <laughs> I've never, ever heard that joke before. Not even once. And Jason was also in Sojourn 2. He wrote a story for that. I'll put a link to Sojourn 1 and 2 in the show notes, which were the fiction collections that we as a podcast put out. And I've had some people ask me if there's going to be a Sojourn 3. And is it no or hell no? The answer is actually yes, but it's going to be a little bit. The answer is we're going to start working on it later this year. I don't want to be messing with it in the middle of con season. And so we're going to come back and take a look at a Sojourn 3 probably sometime in the early fall. So the answer is yes, we are going to put together another one, but it's going to be a little bit yet. All right. So, Jason, that's where people should know you from, in my opinion. If you've done anything else, it's less interesting because <laughs> it wasn't what came to my mind. Unless it was two chicks at the same time. Unless it was two chicks at the same time, in which case I don't want to know because I'll just be jealous. I could tell you guys a terrible mnemonic at this point. What's stopping you? You know what? I'm going to go ahead and tell my terrible mnemonic. At least it's not the football thing. No, it's not the football <laughs> thing. You know how I remembered the difference between Yuri and Yowie is one of them should be yours, right? <laughs> And the other's a yowie. Yeah, and the other's an owie. Yeah, the other's an owie. So that's phenomenal. It's, Continue. It's outstanding. <laughs> All right. You're fired. <laughs> so go in the breadline with Brodor. <laughs> Jason, you've got a Kickstarter that, as of this recording, I believe it is live, right? That is correct. It is just launched. All right. So tell us about this Kickstarter and what's going on with this Kickstarter is going to tie right in to today's show topic, which is not going to be my mnemonics on Yuri and Yowie. Thank God. <laughs> well, the anthology is called There and Back Again. Did I mention it was an anthology earlier? I'd forget. Um, I've had a lot of luck with kickstarted anthology projects, and this one is smaller than those flash fiction anthologies that you've been part of, Dan, where we had 100 different authors doing very short pieces. This is rather a collection of 20 to 24 essays on travel and how it influences gaming or inspired adventures that you wrote or affected how you implemented rules or other aspects of travel in RPGs because every good RPG campaign has travel just all over it. 
Well, even if it doesn't have travel all over it, I think travel is implicit in it. And what I mean by that is when you start a role-playing game, you're creating a thesis. You're saying, what if X, Y, and Z were true? And in some way, this is going to deviate from reality. And so deviating from reality in that way is probably going to involve fictitious people, fictitious places, or alternate versions of real people and places. And so you are drawing from the experiences that you have picked up as you've gone throughout life. And what you're doing right there is you are moving the players to another place, to another point Mm. of context. And so the very act of role-playing, even if the entire game takes place locked in one room, there is still the influence of travel that I think is implicit in the concept of doing something like the interactive storytelling of role-playing. You know, I've done the opposite once. This was when we were doing the Skies of Glass game that was set in Cape Dorado that we talked about so many times. was down in that area for our family reunion, and on the way back, I stopped in Cape, drove down to the river, and took pictures of different areas along there, strictly because we had been playing in that town so much that I wanted to go back and see the real areas. Well, that's fantastic. That's a great example. And even in those smaller games where you're in a city or in a room, those non-player characters, the decor, the various locations that are important, become much richer the more that you've seen in the, in the world and the more that you've seen in your life. You're way back when. Does anyone remember the Gamer Traveler? Yeah, I've been trying to find that guy, actually. Daniel Perez, good old DP. In fact, he's actually reviving his his company, High Moon. But years and years ago, back when Dragon's Landing Inn was still a thing, and they were the ones mowing our lawn before we got Happy Jacks, there was a guy by the name of Daniel Perez who was traveling around, and what he would do is he would journal the places he went to and describe them And he would do a podcast segment for their show where he would talk about these places in the context of what if they were role-playing locales. And some of the places he visited made obvious sense, like castles and such. But he just talked about his travels in general with an eye for role-playing. And he did a segment called The Gamer Traveler. And I think after Dragon's Landing Inn went defunct that he kind of... Well, High Moon stuck around for a while, but he focused on other things. And the Gamer Traveler effort kind of fell by the wayside. And I may be getting the story a little off, but if that's the case, history's wrong. It'll just readjust on the next split of universes. So it's just that my version's true. I am Person Zero, by the way. Oh, excellent. All all of you guys are just stories that flow from my mind. So it's your fault. (laughs) Everything. Everything is my fault. You are all my fever dreams. (laughs) But yeah, so he he did that for quite some time and then moved on to other things. And I don't know if Gamer Traveler's on his horizon, but he is getting High Moon started back up. And so, Jason, if you're interested in talking to him, I would be happy to point you in his direction and see if he's interested in being part of this. That would be fantastic. He's actually one of the guys on the list of people I wanted specifically to contact and invite, as opposed to the folks who kind of answered an open call of submissions. So that was going to be my question. Do you already have the authors and stories lined up for this Kickstarter, or are you doing the Kickstarter and then bringing in the people? I have about half of them already decided. And we've got some booters, Jeb Brock, uh, Beth Roper might be getting involved, depending on how much time she has in the next couple months. Mikey Mason's in. 
DJ from the Bujo role-playing game episode that you guys did a little while back. He's on board. Eddie Webb's coming. Chris from Kicked in the Dice Bags. And then a bunch of folks from Green Ronin and Modifius, like Jack Norris, Lynn Hardy, Jason Durall. So we got some really cool folks that I honestly can't believe signed up to do this. But we also have room. So if there's anybody who's got a really great idea, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I'm kind of upset because there's one person that I know is in there that you didn't mention. Oh, yes, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm, my feelings are hurt. All right, but Jason, in talking about this topic, mm-hmm. we're, we're not just going to talk about the Kickstarter because what this brings up is how the real world influences your role-playing games and how your real-life experiences, the places you go, the people you meet, the things that you live through affect your role-playing. And I've got some stories about things I've seen, places I've traveled that have definitely tied back into games that I've done. But you said, and this is where I want to start because I love hearing people's nightmare stories from the weird front lines of life. Because I got into computers because I don't like people and don't like dealing with them. And so I don't get to deal with all this, the crazy insanity that someone like a club bouncer would encounter. So you've been into martial arts, what, 35 years, you said? 35 years, if you count my time on the wrestling team from middle school. Okay, and how many years did you spend working as a bouncer? About a year and a half, not very long at all. Not very long, all right. What's the craziest thing you had to deal with? Oh, Lordy, the craziest. So There's got to be one that's a take-all. Man, just one, just one. So I have to admit that because I worked in a club with a very professional staff, Things didn't really get out of hand that often. It was a larger club. There were always at least four of us on duty. Nobody got hired if they had an ego to prove, because that's a problem that happens in some of the smaller places or a bar that's got a certain culture where the security team, they're there to see how good they can fight. And when they see some trouble start, they just shout wahoo and wait in, (laughs) where our job was to prevent trouble. And we were pretty good at it. And by we, I mean... The team, not just me, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, well, so things de-escalation tactics and stopping problems before they start and that sort of thing. Exactly. Like one trick that I learned there was if it's early in the night and you see that table of those guys, you know, this decade we call them a uh, dude bros. But back then it was a different kind of guy. And you can just tell that once they get four or five beers in them, they're going to be a little liquored up and they might cause trouble. You go up to them. Early in the night, you buy the table around and you just kind of sit down and say, hey, guys, listen, I'm a little shorthanded tonight. And I can see you guys can all take care of yourselves. If you see anything that looks like trouble starting, don't go and mess with them because, you know, our lawyers will have our ass. But can you just let me know if you see any trouble starting? And I'd really appreciate it. And all of a sudden, those guys are on your side for the whole night. Hmm. Just defuses the situation before it even began. That was one of the best tricks I ever learned. You did occasionally get situations where somebody came in with chemicals in a system that weren't legal in the state at the time, and I'm not talking about weed, where they would go nuts and then you would have to get physical and you know, take all four of us to drag them out. It's terribly sexist to say, but probably the biggest storms of feces that occurred would be if a woman would get out of, out of hand. I don't know if, should we include that in the, in the cast or should we not go there? No, go, I want to hear the story. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So it's not necessarily a story, but you know, if, because many women don't believe that a guy's going to put a hands on them and we didn't have any women on our team at that time, they will go farther and they will cause more trouble. 
And then, of course, if you do try to grab a woman and take her outside, there's going to be three drunk Galahads in the room who decide they have to defend her. So it can escalate immensely quickly. Other than that, like I said, it was mostly a boring job. You know, if you're doing your job right as a bouncer, you're bored all of the time. Yeah, I used to be a security guard and a security guard for, I think, about two years. 99% of the time, it is trying to figure out ways to stay awake and just burn up the time until you can go home. But that 1% of the time, you know, (laughs) if something happened and you're like, oh, crap. Now I'm the guy. Now I have to deal with this. Yeah, I want to hear a story from when you didn't do your job well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay, there was a guy, I'm not going to mention his name. He was this enormous gay man whose uniform, when he came into the club, was very nice slacks, a vest, no shirt. You you might remember when that was the fashion back in the mid-90s at certain clubs. Not in Missouri. <laughs> no, no, actually, I don't. But go yeah, on. I didn't do clubs. I still, in my mind, I'm just picturing this entire place and all these scenarios as Roadhouse. But yeah, yeah go on. And he has two enormous gold nipple rings. Okay. Uh, like you do. Yeah. yeah. And he, is, he was actually a really cool guy. And he was a regular, except whenever he got his heart broken. No. Then he'd come in and start drinking and start escalating. And he was huge. And so I was a little scared of the guy. But the first time he started to kind of amp up and ramp up, my buddy came up and just put one finger through that nipple ring <laughs> and dragged his ass out the door. And he was like, it was like a bad character in an 80s movie because he was getting up and on his tiptoes going, owie, 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 <laughs> all the way out the door. And then the next, then the next day we got flowers from him and a little note apologized. <laughs> That's fair. Wow. <laughs> That was probably the thing that surprised me most. You know, you'd have people who you'd have to put hands on from time to time, but they didn't seem to take it personal once they sobered up. Mm -hmm. I've heard tell that in other clubs and other towns, that's sometimes very different where you have to let people be laying for you in the parking lot and whatnot. Mm. But that wasn't the case at this club. You know, there's something you mentioned in there, and this is something that I have definitely changed the way I portray in role-playing games based on experience. And because of the area I live in, I don't see it too often around home. And I don't mean literally around my house. I mean, within a several mile blast radius of where I live. And that's drug use. Mm. You know, there's a lot of role playing games that either do or have the potential to deal with elements of drug use and drug abuse. Now, that could be in the form of combat enhancers. Some real street drugs started as combat enhancers. Crank is among them. Uh, crank was used by other groups. It's Nazi crank. Yeah. 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 yeah There's a reason why it was, yeah, one of its yeah. names was Nazi crank. And it also got the name crank because it was something that's kept in the, like, the crank case or whatever. But, you know, it's a little off topic. But the point being. But very the, relevant here in Missouri. Yes, it is relevant. <laughs> Both the Nazis and the meth. Well, more of the meth than the Nazis, but yes. But that's something that having seen more of. It's really changed my view on how that kind of thing works, that what it's like for someone to be on those drugs, what they act like while they're on those drugs, and then what kinds of things happen to them over the long term. That's something that we're dealing with, at least in the prior leg of the Skies of Glass campaign, is it's not combat drugs per se, but there's at least one character in there who is regularly taking a series of narcotics and a series of medications to try and keep himself functional. 
And he's actually powered more through industrial cybernetics than through the drugs themselves. Much like modern Nazis. Yes. <laughs> but it, nonetheless, it, it's something that I have to deal with in the game is how does that affect him? How is that affecting his brain? How is that affecting the way he behaves? So you were a bouncer where? Well, what state were you in? What city? Albuquerque, New Mexico, with a little bit of a reprise in Portland, Oregon. Oh, really? What year? That was in... 1997, 1998. Holy crap. There's a good chance that I ran into you. In Albuquerque? Yes, because here's why. It's not that small of a town. It's... I mean, it's pretty well, small but, town. But let me explain why. Yeah. Okay, so in 1997, I was living in Albuquerque. It's, it's I was living down there for about a year. And okay. while I am a straight man, I was dating a woman who was friends only with gay men. Okay, there's a term for this that I'm not going to use because it's offensive, but blank hag, okay? And that was how she described herself. And so as a result, she liked going out to nightclubs, particularly gay clubs. And Mm. so I actually had quite a few interactions, and I I was never a troublemaker. I mean, I'm a wallflower, but... I so you still, got out your gold nipple ring. I have my gold nipple ring. You lost a lot best. of weight. Yeah, I did. But no, because <laughs> Thank you of, the flowers down. Because, of, <laughs> because I had long hair and usually wore a trench coat and such, it was not uncommon for me to go to one of these clubs and a bouncer would not assail me, but would come up to me and kind of feel me out. You know, feel your nipple rings. They they talk yeah. to me for a second or mm-hmm. they'd actually want to see the back of my waistband so they knew I didn't have a a gun back there or something. And I was always obliging and they were always, you know, very kind about it. But the point being though, that I was in a lot of clubs and whatnot during 1997 and interacted with a lot of bouncers down there. So there's a slim chance we actually met each other. That's entirely possible. But it was being in places like a bar in Manhattan that changed my view on this stuff, watching a very, very, crowded bar it was a small bar very crowded and watching what happens when violence broke out between people who were clearly not in their right mind were definitely drunk or maybe more than drunk and seeing the dynamic of how that played out and then in some cases seeing these people get on the streets later in the aftermath and watching them process that out emotionally and socially watching how they posture, seeing what that actually goes down like. You know, over the years, this isn't necessarily travel-related, but this is life experience-related. I've known people that were addicted to drugs at the time I knew them or had been addicted to drugs in the past. There's a guy I go to church with who's very active in Narcotics Anonymous, I believe. I, I know he's involved in some kind of social support organization for narcotic users. I just don't know for a fact it's N.A., but he has a history of drug use and works with a lot of people who are either currently or recently struggling with drug use. And so you see a very different side of that. But even talking about being in Albuquerque, look, I'm from the Midwest. One of the things I didn't appreciate about the Midwest until I lived in a desert. There's trees and water. You would not. This place, <laughs> seriously, this place is a jungle. Yeah. You do not realize that until you spend a year of your life in a desert. And then come back here, and you're like, holy shit, I'm in the Mekong Delta. 
Yeah, I, I drove from Scottsdale, Arizona up to Sedona, I think it's called. And we passed through, I forget exactly what it's called, but it was something something National Forest. And we're driving through and we're like, there's no trees. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm Midwest and they're just not big trees. No, I mean, there's no trees in the forest. And then after a couple of miles, there was one sort of scrub looking tree. I'm like, there that. And we were passing right through the center of it. So well, that qualifies as a forest down there. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Portland, spent about six years in Albuquerque and then came back to the Portland area. And I'm mildly claustrophobic here mm-hmm. after just six months in the desert, six years rather in the desert. The thing that I noticed when I, I go to places compared to Missouri, Missouri is incredibly hilly, lots of trees everywhere. Yeah. And the first thing I noticed when I step off a plane and look up in most places I go is how much sky I can see. Just from one edge of the earth to the other, like, a, you know, if I go to even Colorado because, you know, it's not quite in the mountains right on the edge of the, of the range or I go to Texas or I go to Nevada or I go to different places. I'm just so amazed by it. I walk out. I'm like, I feel like I'm going to fall up into the sky. There is so much of it. Whereas when you're here in Missouri, you're all in the valleys and stuff of foothills or even if you're on top of a foothill, you just see these little squares of sky. I remember having that reaction when I went to Florida and looked out at the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's that same reaction of it's water everywhere. just goes yes. and goes and goes. And it, it looks like it falls off the earth. That's why I love going to the ocean because I stand on the beach and I look at just as far as my eye can see to the edge of the horizon. And I can actually imagine in my mind why a person would think the earth is flat and the water is just curving off the edge of it. See, I, on the other hand, stood on the beach and basically said, okay, there's sun. Are we done here? I'm ready to go. Can we leave? Sun does not burn me to burnt bacon like it does <laughs> you, Mr. Redhead Pale Skin, but... Yeah, beaches yeah. hold no appeal to me whatsoever. I just wanted to get off of it and get to Kennedy Space Center where there were good things to look at. I like them both. Now, how this applies to a role-playing game? Space camp. That's right, <laughs> baby. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So All let's. Right. No, I can, ser- bring, I can bring it around. Oh so, no, I'm not. I'm, Dan, I'm, I'm Dan ser- thought on the drugs. Uh huh. Kind of links into one of the things about realism and gameplay in general that's been a hobby horse of mine for years. So you have a few of those games that have some kind of complex table about how many drinks you drink or how many shots you take or whatever, and it has some in-game impact on on the play. Mm-hmm. But that's boring. Right. It's math. The same thing. A lot of the realities of bouncing, a lot of the re- realities of travel, a lot of the realities of combat. You know, you hear some people complain about a combat system being unrealistic. But if the first thing you don't do in a fight is roll to see whether or not you hit yourself, mm-hmm. is not a realistic combat system. And you don't want that. Right. That's and there's one... so many parts of travel and uh, bouncing and all those things that are just a huge pain in the ass. I mean, I... you don't really want to make part of the game. I mean, I've been in, in fist fights and stuff, but I certainly haven't been a bouncer, and I haven't really been in a fight in my adult life, although I've come close. You're absolutely right. That, that is one thing that I have always found ridiculous about combat systems. Now, that in that, okay, roll for initiative. No, how about we roll to see if we even want to do this, to yeah. see if our fight or flight takes, takes root. Now, sometimes that doesn't really make any sense. Like in Dungeons & Dragons, we're playing big damn heroes. 
you know, our purpose in life is to go stick pointy things in dragons. And, you know, we're awesome. And if you just keep rolling to run away, that's kind of lame. But I think that anything outside of that where you're not playing a big damn hero, Star Trek, even Shadow Run, you know, this idea that, oh, okay, now it's time for combat. Hey, great. That's awesome. I love combat. My character loves combat. No, no, nobody loves combat. Or if you do, you don't understand what combat is. I mean, even if it's a fist fight without guns, you could get maimed. You yeah. could get really hurt. Or you can end up with consequences. Yeah. There's, and I am not done with Space Camp, by the way. <laughs> we're never done there, with there Space Camp. As long a... as Wayne is on the show, we are never done <laughs> no, with Space No, there's a story camp. there I'm going to tell. That's actually very related to all of and this. should make Wayne feel terrible. So. Oh, I hope so. I hope it. I hope it makes him feel poor. <laughs> that's probably the biggest dick thing I've ever said to him wow. on this show. That's a cold. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's been worse. <laughs> but no. All right. So. Um, oh, I guess there's karma because I can't remember what I was going to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> see, you know, uh, oh, God loves Wayne. We're, we're, we're talking about yeah. violence. So, Carl and I. Got into a fist fight. Got into a fist and fight. You got your ass kicked by a girl because she knows boxing and she's in better shape. And you didn't have your gun. And you weren't going to punch your wife in the face. You, well, you know, you'd be surprised in terms of how well you just did, in terms of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. You, you got parts of the story, but there were critical ones you're off on because it did involve Carla, not her versus me. Right. This is not a domestic abuse story. And it uh, we save those for when Brodor's on. Yeah, we'll save those for when Brodor's on when he's. God, I can totally picture when he barf slaps his wife. I can totally picture memory kicking his ass. Oh, I'm sure she does. <laughs> oh yeah, ever since it gets him. Oh know, yeah, I mean he likes it. He that's likes why she it. doesn't do it. Yeah, that's why it's mm-hmm. rewarding, right? But no, all right. So Carl and I went out to a fundraiser called the Hairball. All right, it's an intentional joke. And what they did is it was a sort of variety and burlesque show that was put on by a bunch of and bears. Uh, uh, well, a bunch of gay hairdressers. Oh, hairdresser. I thought you meant like gay hairy men. No, 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 no. A oh, bunch okay. of gay hairdressers. Oh, all I'm right? sure they've done that, too. And they put on a, it was a burlesque and variety show that was raising money for a shelter for abused women, okay? And they called it the hairball. It just is a joke, you know, because mm-hmm. it was moderately funny. Now, the snacks they brought around were kind of gross because they had found these really creative ways to make edible things that looked freakishly exactly like hair products. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not putting a hair roller in my mouth. I don't care what it's made <laughs> out of. It may have been delicious cake or who knows what, but it looked too accurate. It's like, that is disgusting. I'm not putting that in my mouth. All right. That's what she said. But when we were walking back, all right, this is a place that is not in the best part of town. All right, this is at a place called the pageant. Oh, the pageant. That's not a bad part of town. Well, it depends on the year. But depends on the year and also when you're not out on the street. You're behind it, walking through. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you park in the bad part? ignorant because there's no good parking there oh yeah that's true there's you really get stuck parking in the bad park most of the time yeah there's not much parking and i didn't know the area that well i mean newbie mistake yeah newbie mistake all right so it is one of those areas where good good oh you stepped on the wrong block so i i go quickly bad i parked in a back lot about two or three buildings over 
behind all of this. And as Carl and I are walking back to the car, okay, so it's nighttime now, whatever, there is this group of maybe three or four youngerish individuals, three males and a female pushing a stroller. Youngerish teens, maybe young 20s at the oldest, I'm pretty sure teens. And they were out just acting stupid. And it was a gravel parking lot. One of them picked up rocks and started throwing them at Carla. I did have a firearm on me. Now, here's what goes through my mind. Three or four of them, probably three that would participate in a fight, throwing rocks at Carla. Enrages me. Sure. But let's play these scenarios out. Take out a gun, it's murder. Bingo. Take out a gun. One of them has a gun. It becomes a a firefight. One of them doesn't have a gun. I have just taken somebody's life. Yeah. For what? Right? Now, if they were if they were coming at her with a knife, it'd be a different story. They weren't doing that. What they were doing was ignorant. It could have hurt her, but... No one's life was in danger. But no one's life was in danger, and I had to evaluate that situation and say, look, it doesn't matter win or lose. It's not win or lose. It's, do I really want to win or lose the situation? Right. Not yes. win or lose the fight. Do I want to win or lose the situation? Whether it gets used or not, the moment it comes out, you've then escalated Everything the has changed. Yeah. Everything has changed. That's why they have brandishing laws. And so... What I did was I told Carla, I said, move to the opposite side of me, so move to the far side of me, and let's just walk farther to the back of the lot so we're farther away from them, and let's just be humble enough to put up with the indignity and possibly even a few dings to the head to get out of here without this becoming something it doesn't need to be. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. This is not a commentary on anything cultural. What I'm trying to get at is... Look at how this has affected my role-playing games. How many games do I run? That take place at the pageant? That take place at the pageant. <laughs> no. That, 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 no, he doesn't want to put us in that dangerous of a situation. That, deal, that is the best concert venue in town, goddammit. I love the pageant. That deal with violence being a point in life right. that has serious consequences to even engage in it. That to decide whether you're going to do that that in and of itself is a difficult choice. Skies of Glass, high lethality. One shot, you're gone. Star Trek is another one. Yeah, you got phases that disintegrate. You disintegrate like somebody. Houses. There's Yeah, there's yeah. no fixing that. You, you, yes, you can stun somebody, and the advice I usually give my players is if you stun someone, at least you can say you were sorry. But the other setting it has is disintegrate. They're not there. There is nothing left. And this is a situation that is based on my life experiences where it's like, you know, I've seen not just in my own life, but in other people's life where once a cycle of violence starts, if you break that threshold where you're no longer rational, you've gone purely to that reptilian brain sort of thinking, you have changed things in a way that can't be undone. And uh, somebody, I think this was on Discord, maybe it wasn't, but I think it was on Discord, in, in our Discord, somebody was like, you know, Dan, you really like games that have wounds instead of hit points. I said, well, sort of. That's two pimps right there. It was. That was awesome. <laughs> two for one. Because I, like I, I have a poor memory. Yeah. But the answer to the question was yes, but it's because of the fact that I don't like the idea that there is no meaningful change in a person from beginning to end as oh. bad things occur to them. Well, and, and as as they have to receive 
what comes to them yeah. from engaging in violence, that it, you, you do it without consequence. Well, let's talk about the situation with you and Carla in the context of a role-playing game. Mm. Because, you know, we all know what could have happened, what didn't right. happen, what what should have happened, and all that sort of stuff in real life. And, and you made the right decision. You and Carla made the right decision, which, which is commendable. Some people don't, and it's tragic. But in a role-playing game, the consequences there that you played out in your head in real life are not as as real because you're in a safe space and you're with your friends and you're in somebody's basement and you're having a good time and, and you want to tell this good story. So in a role-playing game, say you're playing modern fiction, detective story, whatever, and that situation comes up, there is no, in most games, there is no, well, am I afraid or am I angry? There is no choice of, well, can I control my anger or do I give in to my fear? Do I make a bad decision or do I make a good decision? Because like I said, you made a good decision. Role-playing games tend to, now we change this and, and we affect it, but on the whole, role-playing games, you tend to want to make the optimal decision. You want to make the best decision for the situation to advance the story. And the, I know frequently we don't do that, but right. this there's nothing in the systems themselves no that encourage that type of behavior of looking at the situation and thinking, would I run? Would I escalate? Well, would think I... about it from this point of view, too. Think about it from the Game Master's point of view. So this situation happens. Whatever the Game Master put this in there, who, who cares? But it's in there. And the players make a bad choice. The players do what Dan did not do, thankfully, of you pull the gun. And, you know, what happens happens. Because the game master will, most of the time, hand wave the consequence. Because you don't want the story of your detective, gritty, urban fantasy story to turn into Perry Mason or a trip to the hospital. Or now you've blown sure. the next three months of campaigns as you try to get this person, this character, work through the federal penitentiary system. Well, <laughs> let, let's be honest, though. If this were a role-playing game, the party would be the four people pushing Absolutely. the stroller. They'd be like, oh, there's people. Rocks, rocks. Rock. And then they, he pulls the gun, and they're like, yeah. okay, you're the, you're the ass. For yeah. pulling a gun on me, how dare you try to stop me from right. throwing rocks at your head? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's uh, kind of where I think that in a lot of game design or adventure design or world design, having things too realistic is not only problematic, but it's usually not what the players are sitting down to the table to do. It depends, where but you yeah. You still have your reality, you know, your experiences in reality, whether it's your job, whether it's travel, whether it's interesting people that you know inform your games in ways that make it more vibrant, make it more, and add verisimilitude when it's appropriate. Yeah, and I think what you just said there is the word that I want to focus on, which is experience. Because what travel gives you is something you can get outside of travel, but travel's a great way to get it, which is a diversity of experiences. You see different cultures, you see different places, you see different people. You walk into unexpected situations and maybe find out that there were things you didn't even know you didn't know about the world. And these then can come back and inform your game. Now, maybe it's not in the form of realism. Maybe it's not in the form of saying, well, I want some kind of hyper consequence to combat. Maybe I want to tell a 
good old D&D hack and slash, and we just want this to be a rollicking adventure, and we don't want to focus on that. But there are still going to be things that you can draw from those experiences where if your heroes who feel no fear are standing at the front of the army that's about to attack the dragon, well, maybe it's a good part of the setting for the farmer's militia behind them that they are having those kinds of choices, that they are going through that difficulty, and your heroes have to rally them to believe or something to that effect. Or maybe the nature where the dragon lives. I could describe very vividly the Sandia Peak, and Jason knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's how you find East in Albuquerque. <laughs> and I could use the Sandia Peak as a great setting to have that dragon emerging from. And I don't see mountains in Missouri. Well, they're not in St. Louis at any rate. But the point is, that's the sort of thing that I don't see around here. And yet that's something, that's an experience where I can bring something real into the game. It just has to thematically be the right kind of real thing. There's a story that I've told a few times, and I'm going to get to my space camp one, (laughs) about the first time I really got away from City Lights and really noticed just how many stars there are in the sky. Yeah, that wasn't until your adult life either, because you you weren't a Boy Scout, you didn't do the camping yeah, thing or anything. Exactly. Yeah. And so the first time I realized just how damn many stars there mm-hmm. are. It's beautiful out there. It is, it's beautiful, but you don't see it anywhere near a city. You don't even see it on the highway a lot because there's too much mm-hmm. light pollution. But the space camp story, the space <laughs> academy. But, no, face Wayne when you say this. Okay. Look him right in the eyes. Let me turn my chair, then. So, Wayne, <laughs> when I went to Space Academy, one of the things they let no, us... No, no, you have to say Space Camp. They don't know what Space Camp okay. is. All right. Well, Even though I, it's wrong. When I went to Advanced Space Camp, <laughs> one of the things they let us play around with was they put us in the simulator for the moon's gravity. So, they put us in this harness where when you move, the harness is designed to resist such that you have the apparent weight of what you would weigh on the moon. And you get to try moving around as if you had your body except on the moon. You think that is not informed, and I says rhetorically, of course, but you think (laughs) that is not informed the way that I portray low-gravity situations in science fiction? Right. Because I have an understanding of what that's like. I, I know what it's like to feel that. I know what it's like to be disoriented, to be even frightened by Think it. of it this way, too. If we're playing a space game, most people, the vast majority of people, if it's like a futuristic one, we're like, okay, you guys put on your spacesuits and you head out the, the airlock. Well, I mean, not to rub it in too much, Dan and I have put on spacesuits and we have gone out. A simulated it's airlock. It's deal. Yeah. The next it, game I run, there's going to be a space camp, but it's going to be blown up. <laughs> <laughs> so Wayne and Fear the Cosmos. And there's going to be run. an NPC named Chad, an NPC named Dan, <laughs> and they're going to be are cool so guys. happy about space so, camp. Uh, oh, yeah. Is this a promise that Fear the Con, you're going to run Skies of Glass, Huntsville, Alabama? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just this gigantic, glowing crater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had very similar experience. Uh, the market squares in my games will never be the same after I was in some of the night markets in Kuala Lumpur. Oh, yeah. Yes. I can imagine. Was well, great, actually, I can't uh, imagine. I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> it amazing. was really something. It really changed the way 
that I viewed and imagined that kind of chaotic, packed, hawkers everywhere, all kinds of goods, legal and illegal available, just really changed how I thought those should look. I've been all over the U.S. I I traveled a lot when I was a kid. My my mom worked for Pan Am, so we got free airfare. And and she was a travel agent, so we got a lot of free hotel room stuff. So I have probably traveled a little bit more than, than most people my age, at least when I was a kid. And I've seen a lot of different cities, architecture, styles of cities, lo- you know, geographic locations. And one of the things that I try and put into my games is a sense of style and architecture that mm-hmm. most game masters don't. Not that they're doing something wrong. It's just that, you know, they're trying to tell a story. They, they may be focused on characters or they may be focused on this or that. And I've seen such a different style. I, you know, I've been to L.A., I've been to San Francisco, I've been to Washington, D.C., I've been to Los, you know, uh, Reno, armpit that is. I've been Texas, Colorado. I mean, I've just been Florida, Alabama. I've been Louisiana. I've been all over the place. And they're, they're all different in a way. They all look in. There's a different vibe to them. There's a different feel to them. When I try and run role-playing games, even if, you know, you're on the third moon of Gondor or something like that, I try to pull a sense of, of a feel for that location that, that is unique. It's not just, I don't like doing buildings. You go to a hospital and it's a building and you go in and then there's all the story and the NPCs and all the fun. I, I try to give a sense that, it, that you're in a unique and interesting place. I don't know if I succeed, but I try and draw from those experiences. You know, you can upgrade that. This is something I've experimented with because I'm also really fascinated with architecture by, you know, that that strata of what I like to call nerd skills in most games, things like history, architecture, the things that round out a character and they're there on available in the game. But most people opt to put those points into some kind of combat skill instead. Right. Well, you know how once you kind of get used to the various architectures in real life, you know where the restroom is in a WPA <laughs> building rather than in a glass and concrete skyscraper. And right. it's kind of predictable. You can actually work that into your character's knowledge and abilities about whether they, they're pretty sure there's going to be a ledge outside that window if they want to jump out it. Or maybe this escape route is going to be likely more to the left than to the right because they happen to know – Zardanthian architecture on the fourth moon of Gondor. <laughs> this city is getting a strange number of moons. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> well, I guess it was a city, it was a country, or whatever. But it was a planet named after a city in an unrelated book, and it has a lot of moons. Damn it! Don't judge my culture. <laughs> now, this is far human culture. You think there's not going to be an interstellar explorer who names moons after everything in Lord of the Rings? Oh yeah. Oh, I'm sure they will. I mean, yeah, the weird things stuff gets named after already. That was the uh, that was a quirk with Rendezvous with Rama is that they ran out of uh, the Greek and Roman god names for astronomical items, things in space, yeah. and so they started in on the Hindu gods and stuff. And that's how Rama got its designation. Yeah, something else you can tell quite a bit about a city. Look, if you just look at this, is what things are named. Mm. Because, for example, if you look around St. Louis, many of the things are named after people of historical significance, some of which were directly related to the city or its history. For example, we have quite a few roads that are named things like whatever ferry. There's the Tesson Ferry, Lime Ferry, 
those actually used to lead to river crossing ferries. Yeah, because we got rivers everywhere. We, we have rivers everywhere. And so that's where it, those things got their names. If you look at our street names, we butcher all of them. Why? Because the city was founded primarily by the French, but then settled heavily by Germans and Italians. It's a Spanish fort first. And, right, yeah, but the point is that most furthest of the names... West, furthest West Battle of the Revolutionary War was fired. But that's why places like Gravois get called Gravois, uh, is because we're taking Le, French names... Le May, Le May Ferry. Yeah, Le May, and yeah, Le we're Cree. pronouncing them Germanically, mm-hmm. is why this place has the names of St. Louis. Yeah, instead of St. Louis. St. Louis, St. Louis. <laughs> I had a situation like that, you know, Raised in the Pacific Northwest, mostly in the 70s and 80s, where education wasn't overtly racist, but it was kind of racist by omission, where you only learned about white people in school. Hmm. Getting down to Albuquerque, seeing Avenida Cesar Chavez, (laughs) and wondering why they named a street after a boxer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had that one, too. I had that exact same thing. Uh, There was a uh, gas station on Cesar Chavez Road that was terrible, by the way, because it was the slowest gas pump I've ever encountered in my entire life. I sat there for, I don't know how long, got about a gallon of gas out of it. But yeah, I, I remember the same thing. I just kept seeing Cesar Chavez's name everywhere. And I finally had to ask my girlfriend, who is Cesar Chavez? I've never, <laughs> just never heard of the guy. I mean, yeah, I, I was standing once at the intersection of Cesar Chavez and MLK MLK. Right, And it's like, well, I know half this equation. (laughs) So I was sitting here trying to think of uh, places around St. Louis with names. And all the ones I keep coming up with weren't named after people. They're named after businesses and corporations. But that's something I never do in game. Mm -hmm. If there's a stadium in a city, I never think to name it after a company that's there. Right. Except for the recent game where I have Max Brand everything. Right, right. You, You have your own company in there. I think two pieces of actionable advice I can give here is one, look in retrospect. If you want some interesting descriptions for a place, try to think back to something similar you've encountered in life, whether it's a person, whether it's a place, and think about how you would describe it to somebody. And that may be a great way to relive that moment and to get somebody else into that moment. As an example, I could talk about the Vegas Strip. The Vegas Strip is sensory overload there is so much light there are so many people so much motion so much activity that you can't take it in you don't take it in your brain starts to become very selective the number of things that you don't notice is enormous and which ties into my second piece of advice which is to live intentionally to pay attention to yourself to sort of live at the meta level to notice how you are in a moment. If you're walking down the Vegas Strip, think for a moment, what am I going through right now? What is, what, what's occurring? A midlife crisis. Yeah, midlife crisis, or <laughs> I'm getting a hooker, which I guess is a midlife crisis, or I don't know, just a bad life decision. But I was just there on a work trip. <laughs> at a topless magic show. That was the last thing I did there. For most <laughs> of the trip, I was there at a work sh- for a work thing. Mm. But I know from walking down that strip, how easy it is for your brain to have to start filtering things down to the point that you may even start making mistakes. You walk into the wrong building, you bump into somebody, you and know, what is all that perception role failures. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know notice, how to describe them. You'll what notice, I focused on instead of all of the big bright lights 
all of the cards on the ground and how yeah. and how much it's going like somebody is going to have to clean all of these up and they're going to have yeah. street yeah. sweepers and all of these bright lights are out there and so, it was and you know what I very overwhelming that? so it's like this is what I'm looking at instead so there, there's the terminal of a starport mm-hmm. well here's the thing you know I made the joke about the perception rules but it's uh, I'm serious though when you game with Dan and you make some sort of notice check perception roll or something the vast majority of game masters that I've played with is, boom, botch the roll. Eh, you don't you don't see anything. Oh, okay. Dan does not do that. Dan, you botch the roll. He tells you you notice something. It's just not relevant. But you always notice something. And that goes back to this Vegas thing of there's so much going on. You see things. You input. You take that input in. It's just that if you botch the roll... You don't. You see something. You just don't see what you need to see. But if you s- score the roll, then you filter all that out, and then you've seen what you need to see. So there, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You meth addict, Nazi <laughs> crankhead. <laughs> Wayne's story about the cards on the ground in Vegas in Japan. They put those same advertisements on the back of a little handheld sized pack of tissues because mm-hmm. they know the needs of their clientele. I guess. That is a really cool cultural thing that I didn't know. Yeah. They hand out lots of tissues. the monkey? No, it's not for spanking the monkey. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I love learning new, like, little things like that about culture that you wouldn't... Okay. You're not well, going to get off of TV. You'll only get by talking to somebody who's been there and makes a comment like that. Then, yeah. Well, let's talk about that one just as, as a quick example about culture. You go to Japan. This is something... Uh, text was my brother was talking to me about is the cultural attitudes because he was talking about how in japan their entertainment's very open they deal with a lot of themes pretty bluntly and he said it was interesting living in germany because when he was in germany he would see filtered in japanese entertainment like anime and all the nudity and sex was in there but all the violence was toned down or removed Mm. He would then see the exact same thing being shown on American TV. And in the American version, all the sex and nudity is gone, but most of the violence is still left Mm -hmm. in there. And so you go to someplace like Japan, and so their attitudes about these things are very different. I dealt with something like this in trying to work through alien races for my Epoch of Riso setting. Some of them I wanted to be very human, very relatable but some of them, I really wanted to think through, what do these people go through? What is their culture? What do they think of? What does this xenophil think? For you, exactly. <laughs> and I, I actually, it's kind of funny. It's one of the things I did is all of the species have derogatory names for each other. <laughs> now, they don't always use them, but I actually thought that through, especially for the races that are going to be predisposed to do that, to want to devalue or other another species. And it's not just humanity. Humanity does have terms for them, and it's kind of funny because one group I ran it for, they would always ask me at the start of the campaign <laughs> to review those terms. But one of the, the, for a race that was derogatorily called the Mudskippers, one of the things that they had is they were very focused on cleanliness. They had existed in a sort of amphibious lifestyle. Things were very segregated. Their planet offered them an enormous amount of open space because of the fact that land and water were equally usable to them. And so they 
heavily segregated the aspects of their lives. For example, we eat together, we being humans, eat together, but we go to the bathroom privately. To them, that's another body function, and therefore they don't do that in front of each other either. They will not eat in front of another person. They consider it to be rude. They consider it to be just as rude as if you were to drop your pants and take a dump in front of me. I ended up working out their housing to exist in layers of ceremonial cleanliness, that the front room was where you entertained. Then we get less socially acceptable as you go backward. So the next room back is where you sleep. The next room back is where you eat. The next room at the very back is where you do your waste functions. Concepts like restaurants, they only exist in quarters of cities that are predominantly alien inhabited, Because the idea of having a public restaurant would be as anathemic to them as it would be for us to have one giant hole in the ground we all squat over at the same time and deuce into. I mean, they would find it just as revolting. So this is a concept that came from observing, originally, the distinctions between Germany, Japan, and America of how we segregate things and how we want our lives to look. And taking that into a role-playing game and using that to add some depth to something that otherwise would just be another funny-looking alien wandering around and, you know... Pooping all over the place. Pooping all over the place, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, Jason, once again, anthology coming up. Give us the highlight real quick. It's called There and Back Again. It's an anthology about travel experiences and how it can make your game great. It's got a huge cast of fairly big deals in the role-playing game industry, none of whom are as important as Dan Repiger. Nope, absolutely not. the Kickstarter's live from now until April 19th. All right, so check the show notes for the Kickstarter link to that. Hope you'll back that and pick up a copy so you can see what important things I have to say and ignore (laughs) everybody else's contribution. (laughs) Beyond that, have a great week of great games. Go to Space Camp, and we will talk to you next time. He's a brick. How? <laughs> this has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2018. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.